God, I give you all I can today. These scattered ashes that are hid away, I lay it all at your feet. From the corners of my deepest shame, the empty places where I've worn your name, show me the love I say. Thank you, Krista, for your ministry of music. Please turn with me to our scripture reading for this morning, which can be found in the book of Romans, chapter 6, 
And we'll be looking at verses 14 through 23 today. Again, that's Romans chapter 6, verses 14 through 23. And the page number for this passage is 1,199 in the Bibles that are found under the pews. Romans chapter 6, beginning at verse 14, reads, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that... You who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time for the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those, those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification, and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Many people serve God or do good things in order to try to earn their way to heaven. They believe that by doing good, they will merit eternal life. Perhaps there's no clearer example of that kind of mindset than that of John and Charles Wesley in the early period of their ministry. <coughs> I thoroughly enjoy reading biographies, especially autobiographies. And uh, John Wesley faithfully kept a journal or diary. And this morning, I'm going to be reading some excerpts from John Wesley's journal. John and, Wesley, John and Charles Wesley became missionaries to the American Indians in order to earn their way to heaven. Listen to the words of John Wesley in his journal. It's recorded Tuesday, October 14th, 1735. My brother Charles Wesley and myself took boat for Gravesend in order to embark for Georgia. Our end in leaving our native country was not to avoid want God having given us plenty of temporal things, nor to gain the dung or dross of riches or honor, but singly this, to save our souls. That was his entrance. The reason they were going to go to preach to the Indians was to save their souls. Five years later, 
After having returned to England from America, John Wesley encountered Peter Bowler from Germany. Peter Bowler heard John preach on numerous occasions and was concerned about Wesley's message of works righteousness. So John Wesley records, and I quote, Saturday the 18th. We went to Stanton Harcourt. The next day I preached once more at the castle in Oxford to a numerous and serious congregation. All this time I conversed much with Peter Bowler, but I understood him not, and least of all when he said, my brother, my brother, that philosophy of yours must be purged away. After being confronted by Peter Bowler, John Wesley got word that his brother Charles was ill. He was dying. The discussion that John had with Peter Bowler along with his brother, brother's imminent death produced a lot of soul searching within John. He wondered, could this be true? Could there be this salvation by grace through faith? This resulted in John reaffirming his commitment to works righteousness. And he records, and I quote, with regard to my own behavior, I now renewed and wrote down my former resolutions. First, to use absolute openness and unreserve with all I should converse. Secondly, to labor after continual seriousness, not willingly indulging myself in any the least levity of behavior or in laughter, no, not for a moment. He wasn't even going to laugh. He was going to have no happiness. He was going to have no sense of, of joy. He was going to give it all up in order to earn his salvation. To speak no word which does not tend to the glory of God, in particular, not to talk of worldly things. Others may, nay must, but what is that to me? Then we read in his diary five days later. At this time, Charles had recovered, and John had further discussions with Peter Bowler. March the 4th, Saturday, he writes, and I quote, I found my brother at Oxford recovering from his pleurisy, and with him Peter Bowler, by whom, in the hand of the great God, I was on Sunday, the 5th, clearly convinced of unbelief, of the want of faith, whereby alone we are saved. And so he was converted on Sunday, March the 4th. The result was, and I quote, Monday the 6th, accordingly, I began preaching this new doctrine. Though my soul started back from the work, the first person to whom I offered salvation by faith alone was a prisoner under sentence of death. His name was Clifford. Peter Bowler had many times desired me to speak to him before, but I could not prevail on myself to do so, being still, as I had for many years, a zealous asserter of the impossibility of a deathbed repentance. He had believed that it was not possible for a person to get right with God on their deathbed. They would have no opportunity to do good works. But now, having been convinced of salvation by grace through faith, the first one that he presents the gospel to is this poor man under the sentence of death. 
than God was at work in the life of Charles Wesley. Monday, May the 1st, the return of my brother's illness obliged me to again hasten to London. In the evening, I found him at James Hutton's, better to his health than I expected, but strongly adverse to what he called the new faith, this aspect of preaching the gospel of faith alone. Wednesday, the 3rd, my brother had a long particular conversation with Peter Bowler. And now it pleased God to open his eyes so that he also saw clearly what was the nature of that one true living faith where alone, through grace, we are saved. That's the testimony of John and Charles Wesley. Of course, they wrote a number of hymns and one of them we're going to sing in closing this morning of oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. John Wesley went on to say this, I preached to have faith. Now I preach because I have faith. In like manner, there may have been a time that we worked in order to save our souls, but we have found that that is not the case, that we're not saved by works, but we're saved by grace. But now, because our soul is saved, we desire to do good works and to bring honor and glory to God. Now, we live for God because we are saved. The theme of this morning's message is that God's grace does not promote sin. Rather, God's grace restrains sin. Let me say that one more time. God's grace does not promote sin. God's grace restrains sin. So, how does that happen? If you notice Romans 6, 14 and 15, it says, For sin will have no more dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Here we have a continuation of what began earlier in the chapter. In Romans chapter 6, verse 1, the question was asked, what shall we say? Shall we, continue, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? The answer was, God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer in it? And then we had the long discussion. And we ended last week by talking about this freedom that we were given in order to serve God. And that we needed to move off the plantation of sin and live our life to the honor and glory of God. Now the question is, does, sin, does grace promote sin? And the answer is no, God's grace restrains sin. How? Four ways. First, grace restrains sin by obligating us to live righteously obligating us to live righteously. Look at Romans 6.14. For sin will have no more dominion over you since, because you are not under law, but under grace. We have moved from a place of being under or responsible to the law to now moving to a place of being under or responsible to grace. 
Before we were saved, we were under the dominion, the control of the law and sin. Going back to Romans 5.21, if you would look there with me. All of this just keeps building on each other. Romans 5.21. So that as sin, and then here's the key word, reigned in death. All right, so before we were saved, we were under sin's dominion. But now that we are saved, we are under grace's dominion. Notice verse 21 of chapter 5. That as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness. So before we were in the kingdom of sin and destruction, now we are in the kingdom of righteousness, and now we are controlled not by sin, but we are controlled by grace. We have an obligation. We have a duty to grace as opposed to a duty to the law. So we have this responsibility of living righteously as a result of grace. Secondly, grace restrains sin by providing the desire to live righteously. Grace restrains sin by providing the desire to live righteously. Grace not only has its unique claims upon us, it also has a unique power over us. Grace provides the want to in serving Christ. Notice Romans 6.16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey? So there is this aspect of presenting oneself, of offering one's hands, feet, body, in order to serve another. And there were two options. To serve sin or to serve righteousness. Notice verse 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? There are two kinds of slaves in the Word of God. There are slaves that are slaves as a result of being captured, such as in our country, most of the slaves that uh, came to America were captured. They did not come voluntarily. They were brought here by force. But in the Old Testament there was a provision that if a person wanted to be a slave of another they could go to the, to the uh, temple and there, there could be a, a hold drawn in their ear and uh, a ring put in their ear. It was a sign of uh, voluntary servitude that one would enter into. This is talking about a voluntary servitude of presenting yourself either to serve sin or to serve righteousness. And the result of God's grace is that we desire to and choose to live righteously. Again, verse 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness? We have presented ourselves as those that are obedient to righteousness. The result of God's grace is that obedience came from the heart. Verse 17. But thanks be to God that you were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart. 
Whereas before, when we heard about righteousness, it was external. It was out there. And we were told to be righteous. The law taught us that we were to do good, but it could not create within us the desire, the want to, if you will, to do good. But by the Spirit of God, now there comes an obedience that stems from the heart, that there is this willingness now to serve the Lord. And that is described more fully when you get to chapter 7. Just look at verse 6. You know, all this keeps building on each other. Romans 7, 6. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. There's the captive slave. So that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, not in the old written code. Now there's this desire to serve God. That obedience results from believing the gospel. Notice verse 17 of chapter 6. But thanks be to God that you once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart, now this, to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. I'm looking at this phrase, to the standard of teaching. The standard of teaching that's being referred to is the gospel. And the gospel brings about obedience. Turn with me back to Romans chapter 1. We have to keep reviewing these things, just keep building on each other. Let's go back to Romans chapter 1. And I spent a whole sermon on pretty much this one idea of chapter of verse 5. But let me give you the context, Romans 1, 1 to 5. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, whom he promised beforehand, but it's, you see it's the gospel, God's gospel, the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning the Son, who descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection of Jesus uh, from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now verse 5, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. The obedience of faith. Faith brings obedience. Faith results in obedience. The faith that is talked about is the faith of the gospel. Faith in the gospel produces obedience, righteousness in our hearts and in our lives. <clears throat> Thirdly, Grace restrains sin by providing us with the ability to live righteously. Through grace, we have been placed under the care entrusted to the grace of the gospel. Again, back to Romans 6, 17. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching. And now this, to which you were committed. To which you were committed. When you just read over that, that might sound like it's talking about our commitment to this standard of teaching or our commitment to the gospel. But it's not that. It's not talking about our commitment to the gospel. This is a passive. This is talking about our being entrusted 
to the gospel. Our being delivered over to the gospel. The uh, NIV hits it on the head. Listen to how the NIV translates this. Romans 6.17 But thanks be to God that you used to be slaves to sin. You wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. Now this is an unusual concept for us. Because almost always in the scripture when we think about the gospel we think about the gospel being entrusted to us. Listen to some verses. Galatians 2.7 But on the contrary, seeing that I have been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. 1 Thessalonians 2.4 But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. So we speak, not as pleasing men, but God. 2 Timothy 1, 13 and 14. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. So many times the emphasis is on the fact that you have been given the gospel. You have been entrusted with the gospel. Therefore, you're to guard it, you're to protect it, you're to keep it, you're to share it, but you are to preserve this, this gospel. It has been entrusted to you. But this verse teaches that we have been entrusted to the gospel. That the gospel is to watch over and protect us. That the gospel is to guard us, is to keep us. And the gospel that it's referring to is the gospel of grace. So grace is what's going to guard us and keep us. It is grace that is going to make us righteous through the gospel. Now notice, go back to Romans 1 again. And see how these things fit together. Romans chapter 1. We are looking at this entrusting, being entrusted to the gospel, the gospel watching over us, starting at Romans 1.16. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation. The gospel will bring about salvation. The gospel will bring about deliverance. The gospel will save you. The gospel will deliver you. Speaking of this age and the age to come. Notice verse 17. For in it, that is the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Their faith will cause them to have life. From Faith to faith, from beginning to end. This gospel produces life in us. Eternal life at the very end and newness of life now. So this gospel is giving life to our dead bodies and spirit. The righteous will have eternal life. The righteous will live righteously by faith. So what do we need to do to make unrighteous people righteous? The answer is give them the gospel. Give them the good news 
of having faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and it will change a person. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away, and all things are become new. John and Charles Wesley were known for what has become to be known as the Holy Club. And they had a real concern for the wickedness that was round about them. And so they developed a method for godliness. And that is where Methodism has gotten its name. It was a method to perform godliness. It was their resolves. It was their commitments. Do this, this, and this, and you will be godly. Don't laugh. Don't enjoy life. Make these resolutions, and you will be godly. But then they discovered that godliness comes by faith. From beginning to end, that is what is going to make us godly. This, this grace that is experienced in our lives. Paul relied on the power of the gospel to make men holy. He said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as is written, the just shall live by faith. And so he preached the gospel, knowing that the gospel is what transformed his heart and his life. And the gospel is what transforms our heart and our lives. The gospel is powerful. For God's grace is at work. That is why God is to be thanked. Look at verse 17. But thanks be to God that you were once slaves of sin and become obedient from the heart. That's the work of God. That's the work of God's grace. He brought about that obedience of faith. He brought about that change in us. God is to be thanked. Previously, because of our sinful nature, disobedience to the law just produced more disobedience. Verse 19. I'm speaking in human terms. Because of your natural limitations, he's talking now about our, our sinful nature and how we could not overcome that sinful nature. For just as you presented your members to slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness... So the disobedience led to further disobedience. Lawlessness just led to more lawlessness. This disobedience led to further alienation from God. You don't need to turn there, but we're unpacking. This keeps building on each other. Romans chapter 1. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their own bodies. Verse 25, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature more than the creator, for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, gave, gave them up to a debased mind. They just got worse and worse and worse because they rejected God. And so God turned them over to their passions. God turned them over to their desires. The more we sinned, the more we wanted to sin. 
the more rebellious we became and the further alienated we were from God and God just gives mankind up to their sinfulness. However, we are no longer alienated from God for the wrath of God has has been removed. Just as sin corrupted us and our sinful nature, now the righteousness that we possess through union with Christ produces righteousness. Look at verse 19 of chapter 6. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once present your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Leading to more righteousness. But when it says sanctification or holiness, there's just this unique, this, this wonderful parallel that the more you, the more you yield yourself to God, the more you seek to live righteously, the more righteous you will become. You will grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. That just as when you sinned, the more it just created more sin, now the righteousness produces more righteousness. And whereas before the sin brought about alienation and the distance of God, and he turned us over to that sin, now the righteousness brings us closer to God, and he helps us all the more. And he gives us some spirit, and he convicts us of our sin, and he empowers us to live for him as we present ourselves to God. Fourth, grace restrains sin, providing us with the benefits of living righteously. We have great motivation to live a godly life, for there is great benefit in doing so. Sin resulted in death. Righteousness results in life. Look at verse 21, chapter 6. But what fruit, what benefit, what, what, what did this sin produce? What was the outcome? But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. What did it produce? It produced death. It produced destruction. It produced hardship. It produced misery. Sin is a miserable thing. Righteousness is constructive. It is healing. It results in life. Look at verse 22. But now you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. So now, this righteousness leads to God's favor, God's help, and it results in eternal life. There is no downside to living a life of righteousness. It's all positive. It's all good. It's all helpful. It is all healing. There is so much misery and heartache in this world because of sin. But living a life of righteousness means we don't have to be ashamed. Meaning that there is none of this, the, the, the fruit of it, the consequences of it are not, are not there. In my haste, I skipped over one important, important thought. 
And that is that it says when you were in your sin, you were, you were dead to righteousness. You were dead to righteousness. Meaning that when we were sinners, it was impossible for us to do anything to gain God's approval. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. All our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. No matter what we did, it could not gain God's approval. But now conversely, because we belong to God, there is nothing that we can do that warrants his condemnation. There is nothing now that is going to bring about his judgment upon us. Keeps building. Romans 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Now there is no judgment. Now there is help. Now there is encouragement. Now there is the assurance of God's constant care and watch over us. Conclusion is, we have life through grace. Notice Romans 6.23, the concluding statement, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Sin is a killer. For the wages of sin is death. It's destructive. Sin is deserved. Death is deserved. Verse 23, for the wages of sin is death. Wages is a payment. Sin deserves the death that it gets. But now, by grace, we have been made righteous. And that righteousness is not deserved. It's given. And so in Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift, not what is earned, not what is deserved, but what has been given to us is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Christ gives us life from beginning to end. Christ changes our life. God makes us a new person by grace. That's why God is to be thanked. Every single one of us who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior have done so as a result of the grace of God. He brought us to that place of faith. And that very same grace that brought us to the place of faith is that same grace that that brings us to the place of absolute holiness. One day we'll be in his presence totally without sin. Right now we're in a process. We're growing in grace and we're growing in righteousness. Even as the verse said that righteousness leads to righteousness. It's a result of the grace of God. God's grace doesn't promote sin. God's grace promotes righteousness. God's grace restrains sin. God's grace brings us into this relationship to Jesus Christ, this righteousness, both objectively and subjectively. Objectively, we're considered righteous because of Jesus Christ. We're now treated as though we are righteous. Now we can do no wrong. Before we can do no good, even good deeds. All our righteousness were as filthy rags. Now even our sin is viewed as righteousness in the sight of God. 
But now, subjectively, he's at work in transforming us to actually live righteously. That's a part of his grace, to be delivered from this sin, to be delivered from this misery, to be delivered from this heartache. And one day, when we're in his presence, we'll totally be delivered from that sin. There will be no sin in heaven. We will have complete and ultimate victory. Grace results in righteousness. We're about to take communion. We're going to ask the brethren to come forward. And as we do, we want to be celebrating the grace of God that we find in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. In him we have life. We have eternal life. And we have the renewed and changed life. Now we have been made dead to sin and alive unto God. We have this new relationship. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away and all things have become new. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, you may take of communion. If you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, we ask that you refrain. Not because of any rule that we have, but because of what the Word of God teaches. For in taking of communion, we are symbolically professing our faith in Jesus Christ. That, that grace that changes our hearts.
1 Corinthians tells us that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and after he had given thanks, he broke it, and gave it to his disciples and said, this is my body, which is for you. And today we celebrate, we remember, as he told us to remember, his death on the cross in giving that first communion, that first last supper that we celebrate today. Not only do we remember his death on the cross, but we remember the results, the things that came about, our setting free from sin through that grace that was given to us freely so that we might live for him, doing what we couldn't do um, on our own, as John and Charles Wesley found out, never being able to earn that righteousness on our own, but now living with that grace that is freely given. We give praise and honor to our Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we celebrate and remember the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that we would walk in that newness of life that was accomplished solely by your grace, that we would realize that we are set free from sin and walk in newness of life and serve you with our whole being, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Take and eat.
You hold in your hand a symbol of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that he gave on the cross on our behalf. It's amazing to reflect upon the many benefits that we have uh, of Jesus' death on the cross his pastor ended with this morning from our passage, Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that eternal life is only because of the righteousness of Christ, only because of his sacrifice on the cross and his work on the cross, and not, not our own works. Let us pray. God, we praise you and we thank you for what we have received through your death on the cross. And it's only by faith in receiving your death on the cross and not our works, Lord. And I just thank you for eternal life, for that hope that we have on this earth living for you, but one day we will spend eternity with you. And we can only have that through your righteousness. And we thank you for that. And in your name I pray. Amen. Take and drink. In closing, let's sing together hymn number 90. Oh, 4,000 tongues to sing as we sing of God's grace. Please stand with me. peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. <laughs>